there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. To look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The war crime trial of Gestapo commandment Klaus Barbie began in France. Weird Al Yankovic recorded his first single, Ricky, as well as his debut LP, Buckingham Blues. The EPA announced it would buy the small town of Times Beach, Missouri, because the community had been poisoned by dioxin, leading to its eventual full evacuation. And at the end of the month, Michael Jackson's album Thriller went to number one on the charts, where it stayed for the next 37 weeks. That's not even the most exciting thing to happen to pop culture in February of 1983. Hi, everyone. I am the video word made flesh, and I am your co-host for 80s All Over. Long live the new flesh. Wow. That is Drew McWeeny making a video drum reference, and I am Scott Weinberg accepting said video drum reference. For more, <laughs> you'll have to wait till the tail end of this episode, but rest assured, we will discuss that. Hey, Drew. Yes, sir. Let's say you're a listener and you'd like double the episodes. What would you do? Well, one way I could do that would be to break into our homes, tie us to chairs and force us to make more at gunpoint. But that's a little impractical. So instead, just subscribe to our Patreon page. All Patreon subscribers over the $5 level get access to all of our bonus episodes. And there are bonus episodes every week. There's not a regular episode. And the bonus episodes cover everything from viewer mail to guest celebrities. Scott, who's on the next bonus episode? A guy I'm a big fan of, Mr. Paul Shear of How Did This Get Made? Drew reached out and it turned out he was a listener. We also have some sillier stuff on the way. We have more stuff involving our patrons, um, either through directly through email or perhaps vocally. Dun, dun, dun. We want the bonus episodes to be fun and to cover the decade in ways that we won't do on the regular show. As always, it also helps that you guys rate and review us on iTunes and you carry the word out to your friends. Everything you do, every time you play somebody an episode, every time you send somebody a link, every time you talk about it on social media, it helps. We are absolutely growing the show, and that is because of you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, Hold me now. Okay. I just had a great idea for a bonus episode. Ready? Yes. Our favorite Atari 2600 games. Uh, we should do that when uh, Ready Player One's getting ready to come out, because, oh, my God, it's about to go bonkers. Hey, speaking of madness, Drew, why don't you introduce us very briefly to this bizarre, obscure, visually disturbing Charles Bukowski adaptation called Tales of Ordinary Madness. I come to the conclusion that the touring poet act was a mistake. But then again, my life's been one big one, so I've been told. Luckily, I had a couple of 50s stashed and bought a bus ticket home. 42 hours and 1,600 miles of concrete later, I hit the streets of Los Angeles. Some call it Lost Angels. 
Me, I was just another one of the lost back where I belonged. This is a tough sit by any standards. It feels like a very fitting adaptation of Bukowski in the sense that the movie looks like you're going to catch something from it. Research indicates that Mr. Bukowski was not a fan of the final product, correct? There's a whole industry of reactions to Bukowski where it's not even that they're doing officially uh, either an adaptation or a straight adaptation. I feel like like Hunter Thompson, there is this desire once somebody falls in love with Bukowski's work, it's not even so much that they want to adapt him or they want somebody to read a particular piece. It's that they want to be him and they just want to soak it up somehow. And I think that happens with with Thompson, too. Most of our listeners will know that Mickey Rourke would play this similar character years later in Barfly. Here we have Ben Gazzara as the stand-in for the poet. And Drew, why don't you give our listeners a brief recap of the exploits that Ben Gazzara gets up to? It's as simple as he meets a hooker. And she is just as brutal to herself emotionally and physically and chemically as he is. And it is about the two of them as they collide repeatedly while he wrestles with the idea of whether or not he's going to, quote, sell out. I I will say that if you're going to cast somebody as a destructive muse who is a nuclear force of sex and horror in someone's life, Ornella Muti is a hell of a choice. This episode ruined Princess Aura for me. Oh, now I get it. Yes. And in this movie, she's uh, she goes through some terrible, gross, graphically disturbing, sexually disturbing imagery, let's say. And I kind of want to talk about this because I feel like this film and this this director certainly flirts with a certain thing that happens here. And I, I think Ferrari throughout his career. Um, was curious about where the line was between uh, pornography and mainstream film. And I think there is a push, especially from a lot of uh, European filmmakers, to try and blur that line somewhat. Obviously, this doesn't cross over into being like a hardcore pornographic film at all. But there is a there is a wallow to this that feels like he is pushing it right up to that edge. Moving on. All right. Yeah. Moving on to a movie that couldn't couldn't be more of a polar opposite in terms of tone and style and content to the TV movie stayed boring qualities of without a trace. A child has disappeared. I want to take a look around this neighborhood for myself. Let me come with you. No, I need one of you here near the phone in case there's a ransom call. There's been upsetting on Montague Street. What about the computer check? Any uh, child molesters? Have you called the FBI? If he's been out all night, it'll be called. We huddle up small. If you open this up to the press, are you going to get the crazies? I don't care if I have to talk to every lunatic in the city. Somebody has seen my boy. Without a trace. Ready, PG. Now playing at a selected theater near you. Without a trace, I can't find that little boy any place. He's not here. He's not there. Kate Nelligan pulling out her hair. Thank you. Uh, man, this is dull. It is dull. It's, you know, it's a well-intentioned. It's like a TV movie got like injected with slightly more money and a better cast. Judd Hirsch as a cop. A detective? I like that. I, I, I think that's probably more honest to what most cops are. I think movie cops in general are always cast as leading men, and the reality is a lot of police detectives are Judd Hirsch. I This filmmaker just has no ability to get anything moving at any point. 
one thing that was very commonly discussed as when we were little kids in the 80s is the whole idea of not even of the term stranger danger. We never heard of that, but it was don't talk to strangers and this time kids going missing and being on milk cartons all of a sudden. And there were lots of TV shows and movies about missing kids. And then, of course, the this story being so on the country's mind leaked into movie theaters. And this is just like Drew said, a stayed, ultimately very predictable missing kid story. And it's the only film ever directed by Stanley Jaffe, who is one of those old school Hollywood producers who managed to last through most of the 80s and 90s, um, keeping his hand in. But really, the the 70s and the 80s were his heyday. And I think there's that weird thing, like Art Linson did it a couple of times. There's a couple of these guys who primarily producers and they have that one moment where they crossed over and i'm curious what it was about without a trace that made him go okay i have to tell this story this is the one you're right and it also happened with um directed guilty by suspicion is that erwin winkler yeah erwin winkler i think that there is a real uh appeal to and i don't mean to be too cynical about it because it's not entirely cynical but there's a real cachet to doing a, a social issue drama Let's move on to another film loosely based on actual events. Uh, It is the reunion of Donald Sutherland and Jeff Goldblum after Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's called Threshold. Battle! At any age, at any time, it can happen to anyone. You can't breathe. Uh, You can hardly move. You know one thing. The mountain of death is on you. You would give anything in the world for just one ordinary breath. You mustn't be afraid. They have come to the edge. She is praying for a miracle. The dividing line between life and death is a step across the threshold. This is another one of those Canadian pickups where it was made a couple of years earlier in Canada and had done very well in the genies and was considered you know, decent homegrown hit. And then just took a couple of years to get to the U S it is a drama about Donald Sutherland playing the guy who is developing the first artificial heart and it's complete fiction. It's not about the Jarvik seven. It's not about the real artificial heart. It was essentially science fiction when they started making it. And then by the time it got released in the U S the Jarvik seven was in a dude's chest, very strange kind of slow motion push to get to theaters here in the U S it's really interesting. If you do some research on it, on how closely real life was on the tail. And I mean, by months. Yeah, it's it really did run almost neck and neck. And I when you're making a movie like that, you've got to be wondering, are they going to lap us while we're in the middle of production? Because we're really right up against it. Uh, This director, Richard Pierce, uh, went on to make a couple of other movies uh, over the course of the decade. And he's one of those guys. He's always worked, but he's never been like hot. He's never had a moment where he was now he's Richard Pierce. But, you know, he's made some bigger films with some bigger movie stars. And we'll definitely talk about them again a couple of times. Like you said, without a trace feels a lot like a TV movie. This does too. And I don't necessarily mean that as a knock. It's very conventional and procedural and uh, Mayor Winningham is as the, uh, as the patient is good as well. If you, if you're looking for, a decently entertaining movie about somebody trying to build an artificial heart. You can't go too wrong with Threshold. I love everything about Jeff Goldblum. We will talk about him endlessly in future episodes. But if you are a heart diehard fan of him and or Donald Sutherland, you should uh, dig up Threshold. It's not bad. Going into this next one, I picture an executive's office and he's sitting at his desk and the door flies open. So, Scott, you're the executive and I'm John Voight. Okay, got it. Here we go. 
Oh my God, Irv! I, Irv! Oh, John! I just came from the theater. I I saw this double feature. I saw Kramer versus Kramer, and, and then I saw Author Author. Why the fuck am I not making a movie with kids? Lots of kids now. You're so loud, John Void. How much coke do you have in you right All now? All of it. Five kids now. So I got a script here called Table for Five. To new beginnings. <laughs> I want to come back into their lives. Where were you when he needed support? Oh, never read. I'll teach you. Or Tilly, when she prayed that you might show up at a recital. You're going to be more considerate. Even on their birthday, she would know where to be found. I'm your father. You said. See, I love them too, more than you'll ever know. Daddy. Table for five. Rated PG. It's really weird to me to watch just movie stars making the same film with different movie stars over and over. And this is shitty dad who shows up and takes his kids on a cruise because he wants to play hero dad for a little while. And then something happens. Here's the thing, Drew. You, we might disagree on this one. I think this film is markedly better than author author. And I think that if the movie was just about John Voight taking his estranged kids on a, a boat trip, a cruise, and him slowly coming to terms with being a dad and getting to know them, then you're right. Then it is in every way, much like author, author, but there is a very distinct and piercing plot turn. And I think that's where the film gets really interesting. I don't think the plot turns a bad idea, but the moment when it actually happens, when he is on the phone and he gets the news about his wife. There is a John Carpenter music cue that plays 53 minutes into the movie. And I made note of it because it's fucking crazy. It is such a weird misstep of tone. You're watching this movie that is this other film entirely. And the moment, the way they play that moment is horror movie. It is Donald Sutherland at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in tone. Here's the thing. I think the movie is ultimately about helping kids deal with tragedy. I don't necessarily think it's about, oh, look at this poor single dad. Everyone pity him because he doesn't know how to be a good dad. I mean, that's part of the first half. But I think the ultimate point of the movie is there may be divorce, there may be separation, but when there's tragedy... You really got to drop the baggage. That you it's don't funny. You, I think you had a more genuine reaction. I felt like it was because I'm looking at Kramer versus Kramer, which was such a giant monster fucking hit and then cast this giant shadow that everybody's chasing for the next few years. And it feels more cynical to me in the sense that like Kramer versus Kramer, the first half is the ha ha. John Voight doesn't know how to be a dad. Look, he put a diaper on the baby's head. And then the second half is no, I'm going to fight for my kids. And it feels really cynically built out of another movie's part. Fair enough. But I will tell you this. You know what that other films don't have that Table for Five has? What's that? Richard fucking Krenna. That's what. There's a moment between him and Voight late in the film where he lets Voight know why he's going to stay in the fight. It's a really nice beat. And it's a beat that plays step parents and parents who aren't biologically connected to a child in a way that a lot of these movies would not do because they would make him the bad guy there. It's not about him beating John Voight or being a bad guy or just wanting to do it to do it. He loves these children and he's trying to make a good choice for them. And that's kind of a lovely beat. And Krenna didn't get to play a lot of that. So that's great to see. Flash, we now go live to Drew McQueenie with the Art House Report and his report on Vim Vendors, the state of things. 
Vim Vendors was coming off of, uh, I think, what had to be kind of a mortal wound to his career, which was the production of Hammett with Francis Coppola for Zoetrope. But we uh, we talked about how that film got basically reshot, and there was a lot of debate as to who actually did it, and um, there was some rewriting in the middle of it. And so Vendors felt this weird, interrupted schedule on that, and he tried to go shoot something else. That didn't happen. All of that, that entire experience led to The State of Things, which is a movie about filmmaking not happening. It's really about a film crew that's trying to make a low-budget science fiction movie, and they're in Portugal, and they run out of film, and they run out of money, and their producer has vanished, and nobody knows exactly where he's gone, and the filmmaker has to keep his crew and his cast together while he tries to keep his film alive. I think it's a really potent metaphor for just filmmaking in general. That's what filmmaking is. And one of the things that it gets really right is the inertia that happens on film sets. There's stuff like you'll just cut to, you know, one of the camera assistants and he's got his amp and his guitar set up and he's in some corner of the location they're using just playing guitar for five minutes. And Sam Fuller, who plays the uh, the cinematographer in the movie, is maybe my favorite thing about it. Part of it is him talking about how they're stealing the entire production of the thing by shooting on short ends, which if you don't know what that is, those are the pieces of film that are left over when you're shooting and you have just a couple minutes left to film, not enough to do a whole other scene. So you just keep that undeveloped film and you can use that later. That's how Jarmusch made his entire first movie. And that's sort of a legendary thing. And may have even come from this because Jarmusch worked on the soundtrack for this movie. So maybe he even got part of that idea from watching this. But it's very much a movie about making films and about how it's this act of faith that you have to convince so many other people, not only for their money and their time, but their energy. And you have to keep them there. And and I think there are things to really love about it. I My favorite thing is the way it cuts between different black and white stocks to let you know what is the science fiction film and what is the making of the film. It's an odd little bird. It's well worth tracking down. There's one shot early on where uh, the whole beginning of the movie is the science fiction film within the film. So we're watching about five or six minutes of that. And it's just these people in crazy sci-fi costumes walking across a landscape and they get to this one location and this one character walks out into it. And what looks like just a little concrete bunker at first, suddenly we do this pan over and you realize they're in this amazing, crazy location. And then it pans a little further over and there's the ocean. And it's quite, it's a startling, stunning image, beautifully captured that doesn't ever connect to anything else because you never see that whole film. But Vendors is very good at capturing little moments that they're trying to capture and then also just showing you how hard it is to get anything done on a movie set. I did find it interesting and anything about filmmaking I I want to pay close attention to. I love movies about filmmaking because that's often the most uh, self-reflexive, self-deprecating, telling interesting uh, kind of. Now, this next one, I was really excited to hear that you had your first viewing of it because, man, what a movie to walk into fresh. Scott, let's talk about the year of living dangerously. Hamilton, guy. Occupation, journalist. Jakarta, first assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. An insider on the way out. Oh, three weeks. To what? Till I go home. Where's that? London. Enough of the tropics, eh? 
I've been on the move five years. I'd like to go someplace and stay. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents a new film by Peter Weir, Mel Gibson, Sigourney Weaver, The Year of Living Dangerously. Always considered myself a huge Peter Weir fan. This is what he did right before Witness, and of course, Witness is have it being shot in Philadelphia and starring Han Solo was a big grown-up movie for me uh, as a teenager. Uh, so, but I had never seen or had any real interest in because it is a political and romantic thriller about a part of the world that right now I know little about. And as a kid, I knew nothing about. So it's Mel Gibson, Linda Hunt and Sigourney Weaver. And they're in Indonesia. Mel Gibson is a reporter uh, and Linda Hunt plays a man who has his thumb in virtually every pie. He can speak to the rebels. He can speak to the uh, the poor. He can speak to the government agents. And he kind of takes Mel Gibson's character under his wing. And then Sigourney Weaver is somebody who pops up later. She seems like she's kind of an upper class uh, dilettante. Is that the right word? But then it turns out that she might have more, much more sneaky and important th- reasons to be there. I-, I found it absolutely fascinating. It's an interesting movie for for its literal mindedness. I'm just literally watching a little slice of history. Peter Weir is not all that interested in subtext and metaphor. He's interested in giving you this one little snapshot of a painful time in a country's history. Even though the book was written in the late 70s and was about something that happened in the 60s, the movie was completely banned until the turn of the century. Um, because it definitely poked at something that was still very fresh and real. I think it is appropriate that the movie is incredibly romantic about the idea of being a war zone journalist because it gets the danger of it right. It gets the appeal of it right. It gets the seriousness of the work right. Like you're doing something that actually matters. But at the same time, there is an adventure that this guy is living that is really sold to you. And the arc of the Gibson character proves your point because he starts out very wide-eyed and who can I trust and I want to do the right thing and I have to bring the truth to the world. And then as he gets tighter and tighter into the underworld and the political world of Indonesia, it's nothing's black and white. Like the biggest piece of the story he might get, he has to potentially betray somebody bad. How beautiful are both Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver in this movie? What's kind of admirable about this movie is these two stars at this point in their career could have just started in like a vapid, empty headed romantic drama. And this has legitimate romantic tension and feeling to it. But it's mainly about this country and this this crisis, this political potential coup. And where was it a moment where he was maybe one of the most exciting filmmakers alive right then? Because yeah, this is a guy who's already got picnic and hanging rock and the last wave under his belt and clearly is just muscular like he can do anything he wants this book and this moment in history the the way he shoots it it must have really gotten in his head because man he had a very clear idea for visually how this thing would feel he makes you smell it he makes it it feel tactile and yeah he had the the right idea which is you take two beautiful young movie stars and throw them in the middle of something that is very real And it creates the old Hollywood feel of what these movies were, but in a photojournalistic setting that feels very real and harrowing. And that combination of things, I think, was very new and thrilling. Like, it still feels exciting as filmmaking. 
my question to you now, let's let's talk about this real quick. Linda Hunt, of course, won an Oscar mm-hmm. uh, and her, uh, her performance is fantastic. This film was made today. Would you have a woman playing this man? You would not only not have a woman playing the part, but you also wouldn't have a Westerner playing the part. And it is a, is a white woman playing an Asian man. Yeah, it's a performance that's as complicated to unpack this performance as Cloud Atlas with all of its its gaming that's going on. And on one hand, her performance is strong and very respectful. On the other hand, there are Asian actors who could have played that role. <laughs> and Linda Hunt, she was known in the theater world and she was somebody who obviously directors were already trying to work with. We've talked about her work in Popeye and how she was part of that really respected group of actors that that Altman hired there because he wanted performers like really good performers to come in and build characters so that's what she's doing here is her character work in this is unassailable she's great there's a reason she won the oscar there's a reason she was in that conversation from the moment people saw the film but yeah i i don't think you would see her cast in this today and i'd love to have the conversation with her now about the casting and about how it happened and about her approach to playing it in the first place I think it's a fascinating performance. Uh, you know, I could see how other people would have a problem with maybe it winning an Oscar because the argument could be, is this what you're celebrating? Like replacement uh, instead of representation. On the other hand, the performance is fantastic. So, you know, it's an interesting debate that uh, that people will have as long as they watch this film. Um, how great is the score by Jure? That is that weird thing where the movie is very gritty and raw in places, but you've got that lush, old-fashioned movie score, man. You know what doesn't have a lush movie score, Drew? Oh, no. What? We're doing it, dude. I know. I know. It's time for The Sting 2. <laughs> Sugar and spice and a taste for vice. I am Veronique Lafleur. She's awfully good. I'm Elizabeth Windsor. That'd be bad. Veronica Sherman. And with her in the game, they all Bye-bye. can be had. Jackie Gleason, Mac Davis, Terry Garr, Oliver Reed, Carl Malden. The Sting 2, rated PG. Join the fun now at theaters everywhere. Check newspapers for details. Because when you're looking to replace the magical chemistry between Paul Newman and Robert Redford, it's Mac Davis and Jackie Gleason. That's the play. Oh man! All right, uh, I don't. I don't even know where to start. You know me. I I love like Sword and the Sorcerer. I love lots of cheesy movies. I like lots of movies that are historically considered bad. Oh, wouldn't it be fun to say that the Sting Two was great and that you were the first one to have spotted it? Not even. I wanted to come out and go. This has moments. This has some energy. Not as witless as you may have heard, but you haven't heard because nobody ever, ever. Nobody saw it. I don't understand how this got made. <laughs> I know, to, sorry, Paul Shear. Yeah. How many brick walls? All right. Um, all right. You're Irv. Okay. I'm Irv. Here we go. All right. Look, I got a sequel for, I got a script for this thing too. David Ward wrote it. Oh, hey. David Ward wrote it on the toilet one day and I stole it. We'll make that no matter who's in it because it's the sting. Got Matt Davis and Jackie Gleason signed the fucking contract. Wait. Okay, now wait. Now, I know what I just said, but no, wait. And scene. For our listeners, 
who are blissfully unaware of who Mac Davis is. As an actor, I'm not impugning the man's musical talents. I'm not aware of many of them, but I do know that he was a musician long before he was an actor. So respect on that guard, Mr. Davis. His movie career is North Dallas 40, 1979, Cheaper to Keeper in 1980, and this, and that was his final feature film. (laughs) Yeah. This feels like one of those sequels that is more of a lazy remake than it is an actual sequel. Well, it's not a sequel in any way. Any pretense of this being a sequel has to have gone out the window at some point. They just branded it with the title. But it is Oliver Reed in the Robert Shaw part, right? That is the same character. But who's he getting revenge on? If that's the truth, if the, if it's supposed to be that character, and I know the, the name overlaps, then why is he getting revenge on people we've never met? How is that a sequel to anything? If they had even had one actor in common, you could have sort of made the argument, but he's not getting revenge on, on Newman and Redford's characters from the first film. So what what is the reason that this would be considered a follow up to that story? You know what? I could take this probably this exact same screenplay if you trim the movie a bit and replace the leads. Mac Davis is like a bowl of hair. He is so boring. He's not charming. He's not funny. He's not like he's just a mannequin with jelly on his face. He's boring. And Jackie Gleason, who obviously is a comedic legend and in certain moments, mostly earlier in his career, was remarkably funny. And this is just doing Jackie Gleason. I feel like he would have been he would have been awful to be around on this set. Like watching him in this movie, I look at this like, wow, I'm really happy I didn't work on that. And I'm probably really happy I don't have any fucking Jackie Gleason stories about that film because he looks miserable. Carl Malden humiliated in this movie. Uh, just Embarrassed. Hey, Carl, you're going to come in and you're going to play the donkey. We're just going to humiliate you over and over and over every scene. Terry Gar is wasted and i don't mean wasted like stoned i mean wasted like you have one of the funniest actresses in the world and you just have her doing like a limp accent the character she's playing in this is the character that glenn headley plays so well in dirty rotten scoundrels somebody who's ahead of the whole film somebody who is clearly aware of what men are reacting to and how they're going to react to it and so she's having fun with every layer of that and terry gar could play that if you wrote it for her here's what i don't get man how is this david s ward if this was some hack nobody who they hired to write a sequel to the sting and it turned out to be this i would get it that's what i thought while looking through the research is this is his script alone and he wrote the sting for christ's sake and the director is no longer George Roy Hill. It is now Jeremy Paul Kagan, who is off of, of The Chosen, which we both liked. He would go on to, the, after this, The Journey of Natty Gann. Two good movies. This is a misfire. This seems like something that was made by eight nameless people at Universal Boardroom. And crazy choices. Poor Oliver Reed is meant to be menacing and is so... You're, you know, this movie makes poor use of your beloved dainty ape. Doesn't it? And all you need to do is give him a couple of good scenes where he got to menace somebody. You know what, though? I will give Oliver Reed credit. He's the only one that is has any color because he's he's over the top. The rest of the people seem like they want to disappear into the set. And I will say that the production design quite good. This film was nominated for an Oscar. Lalo Schifrin's score, which is which is all adapted from Joplin the way the original was. And yes, yeah, certainly um, it sounds like the sting. I had one moment as I was watching when John Hancock, character actor John Hancock, showed up as uh, Doc uh, at the boxing thing where they take Mac Davis to to show off his boxing abilities. And it's all a big setup. 
John Hancock plays the ringman there, and he was a character actor who I got to know. Scott, you know who I'm talking about, right? Very frequently played like the church deacon. Exactly. I loved him, and I got to know him at Dave's Video when I moved to L.A. in the early 90s. He was one of our like daily customers. John would come in every day to rent something, and the sweetest guy. And Swan, my co-writer for many years, who you guys may know from Masters of Horror, used to make the joke that he wanted to make a movie where John Hancock was going to play his dad, and they were just going to play father and son, and that was that. And it got to the point where John would come in and go, son, how are you today? Every time he saw him. And I just loved him so much for how great he was in small roles at showing up and always delivering the goods. And in real life, just that good a dude. Yeah, we'll make a note to mention John Hancock again. There's like, and I don't mean this as level of quality, but I mean, like as far as screen present, screen time, let's say. There's your normal character actors who get, you know, their third and fourth build. And then John Hancock would be like that next level down. The bank teller who has five lines, you know, like, but he's always good. The, the worst thing about the Sting 2, aside from the fact that the two leads have the on-screen chemistry of urine and cookies, this movie doesn't have any fun. And I get the feeling like on that first script, like David S. Ward had collected all these cons and wove them together so that you had two guys running all these cons and variations on them. And part of the fun of the first one was just learning about the world of conmen and how they worked. And he said that this is based on other real guys and real scams. But this time it's like being locked in a car with a kid who memorized a lot of facts about con men. And he goes, and then there was a con man in Kansas. And then there was a con man in Missouri. And then there were, it's just obnoxious after a while. To me, this thing too feels like nine-year-olds who love the sting and are like putting on their version in the backyard. Yeah, not good. Now we move on to a very fine dark film that I had never seen. Jeremy Irons and Ben Kingsley in Betrayal. Behind a single tear, I love you, lies mystery. My husband is the other side of that door. Intensity. My life is in your hands. The depths of human experience. Jeremy. I was best man at your wedding. My husband's best man. Your best friend's best man. No. Your best man. A Sam Spiegel production of Harold Pinter's compelling drama in every life, for every love, with every trust, there is the risk of betrayal. Jeremy Irons, Ben Kingsley, Patricia Hodge. Betrayal. I, I just want to start by saying it is brutally unfair that this movie is as hard to find commercially right now as it is. Make this movie commercially available on Blu-ray, please. This is a really interesting film based on a Harold Pinter play. I'll explain uh, its story, and then Drew will explain why it's not conventional. It's about a husband who discovers that his wife is definitely having an affair. And the entire thing begins a year after the affair when the wife and the guy that she had the affair with get back together to talk about it. The entire thing then moves backward in time from there. That's the answer I was looking for. Genius. It moves backwards. It's <laughs> pretty beautifully constructed. And the pl- and if you see the play performed, um, the film is a phenomenal representation of it. They did not change much. It is simply a 
living, breathing version of it in real spaces. And I, I think a pretty sensational example of how to turn a play into a film. The leading lady, we should mention, of course, is Patricia Hodge. I don't know her all that well, but she holds her own against Ben Kingsley and Jeremy Irons. So clearly she's got talent. It's such a potentially dull story if you told it in a conventional fashion. Who hasn't read a, a, a simple melodrama about a spouse who cheats on the other and the heartache that follows? I do think it's an unusual affair the way they set it up where they have this secret apartment and they have this life that they have built together that runs parallel to their real life. It's not just they get together and have sex They've really got this alternate life that they step into as as sort of an escape, and I think that is what is so so wrenching about the depth of the affair. If I if I were married to somebody who I found out just slept with a person a couple of times, that's one thing. This is madness. And Penter based it on what he really did. He had a long running affair with somebody who was married the entire time, and it feels very authentically observed. And there is a lot of this where. I think because it is so personal to him, there's no judgment. And that is the key to this thing working. I, I have huge problems with this. None, none of these three characters, he's not writing them for you to say, oh, they've done bad things, but I want you to feel bad for them. These are the choices they made, and this is what happened. You decide. You decide if you have empathy or hatred or sympathy. You decide, but I'm not leading you in any direction. And the backwards uh, storytelling format, of, you know, at first, of course, it sounds like, well, that's a gimmick. What is that going to do? But a relationship between three people would blossom if you told it in chronological order. And this way, it's almost like watching a flower like wither and die or tighten up. And Yeah, you're right. You have to do this for a purpose. Betrayal to me. This works just as well as Irreversible does in terms of structure, because Irreversible, what what it does that is so so harrowing is when you get to the end of Irreversible and they are at their happiest moment, it's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my whole life, because you know that it's ruined. You know it's never going to be. This makes that point of what violence and what betrayal does to people. And this is the same way, because the, the last thing you see here is you see these two people meeting, and you see the beginning of... What's going to leave wreckage to their lives emotionally? And and you wish you could just step in and go, hey, um, why don't you come over here and get an hors d'oeuvre? And why don't you fuck off? If you don't talk to her at this moment, everything will be fine. And it, it does. It makes this last scene. It's it's unspeakably tense because you're, the whole time you really just wish you could step in and stop them. By the way, if you are a Seinfeld fan, you know this movie, even if you don't know this movie. And i that is what I've talked about, the Mad Magazine theory of how culture leaks into other culture. There's an entire Seinfeld episode called Betrayal that is told in reverse structure that is done just like this, that is obviously a nod. But they don't make a big deal out of it. They don't tell you over and over that it's a film. If we've piqued your interest. Send a tweet to Fox Home Video and, and see if Betrayal 1983 is uh, presently available. While you're at it, you could ignore the, <laughs> the, next, the next Dudley Moore vehicle. Lovesick. Dudley Moore is Dr. Saul Benjamin. Who seems to be the trouble? His patients are driving him crazy. Who am I, really? Are you crazy? <laughs> then I sprouted wings and flew around the room. <laughs> and this is the woman he's crazy about. I can't treat you anymore. What? I'm in love with you. Dudley Moore, Elizabeth McGovern, Lovesick, rated PG. I believe we have another terrible Dudley Moore comedy coming later this year. And I always get them confused, which is which. We're going to have words if you're talking about 
unfaithfully yours. Are there three Dudley Moore comedies this year? Because also romantic comedy comes out later this year. Unfaithfully Yours comes out in 84. And of course, it's a remake, a much better film. But I like romantic that comedy one. is the one I'm talking about. That comes out later this year. That's the one that I always get confused with this. And until I went back and revisited this, which, by the way, is easily available on YouTube and Google and anywhere else you might want to rent it. Uh, I didn't realize this was the movie with Alec Guinness as a ghost. Yeah, so we have Dudley Moore fresh off the turd that was six weeks, and now he's playing. This is a fun idea. He's the shrink who's in love with this patient. Oh, not just in love with her. He almost immediately proceeds to having sex with her after breaking into her house to uh, steal things. Elizabeth McGovern, who at this point was just proving that she is a great young actress, and all that she's asked to do in this movie is like wait for weird Dudley Morfro yes. <laughs> with his weird puffy curly hair to come over and kiss her. It doesn't feel right. It's weird because we just watched uh, still the night in which a psychiatrist is murdered. His patient then comes over to this other psychiatrist and this psychiatrist becomes obsessed with her. And clearly the other one was as well. That's this plot, but without the murder, because she's with another doctor who clearly can't treat her anymore. And so she comes to Dudley Moore, who immediately gets hard and starts stalking her and is awful and smotheringly grotesque in his attentions. And one of the things we're going to see a lot this decade, comedy plots that are about what would easily by any standard be described a crime today. I don't like anything about him as a person, much less as a professional. Every syllable that comes out of Alec Guinness's mouth is the best part of this movie. Clearly, what they've done is they're trying to write him as the John Gilgood character from Arthur. And that's what they're chasing is you'll be John Gilgood. Dudley Moore is going to be wacky and out of control. And then you'll pop in, say something scathing about him. Oh, your little dick makes me sad. And then you'll leave and then it'll be great. Here's the other thing is not only does he do wrong by her as a patient. Because he's so infatuated with her, we literally see a montage where he mistreats and abuses and neglects every other patient he has, and it's played for laughs. It is a cavalcade of fun character actors. I will give the film credit for that. It, if you just want to play spot the actor, there's like, what, eight or nine fun people in this movie. They don't have much to do. I find him despicable, and I and I find the entire movie... It's asking you to go on a ride, a fun, hilarious, wacky ride with somebody who should, for his own good, be removed from his job and probably criminally prosecuted. Let's talk very briefly about the gentleman who wrote and directed this film. This is Marshall Brickman. He co-wrote Annie Hall, therefore Oscar winner. He wrote and directed Simon and then this. And I think the guy is a good writer and a really poor director. Because there's some funny shtick in this movie, but everything is shot like a coffee commercial. I know that you liked Simon a lot less than I did when we talked about it. And those were in the early days of the podcast. I still say there's one great scene in Simon, but I don't know if I think there's even one great scene in this. You know what? You know what my favorite line from Simon is? Huh? Beep, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> um, yeah, but Marshall Brickman, one thing I learned in my research, did you know he co-created Jersey Boys? Yeah, I did not. Yeah, he is. Uh, I, that guy's a survivor. He has managed to stay in this business and every now and then do exactly what he needs to do to get the next decade and a half. At least one thing that Marshall Berkman did right with Lovesick. He unleashed a wild Ron Silver who is seemingly lampooning Al Pacino for no obvious reason. But if you want to see Ron Silver doing an, an Al Pacino impersonation and having fun doing it, 
then Lovesick is worth digging up. If, on the other hand, you want to see Ron Silver as a concerned <laughs> psychologist. I didn't even realize we did this. Oh, my God, it is. Ron Silver, head to head. I had an Oscar winning segue and you laughed I'm over sorry, it. Go, go for it. I'm sorry. I was so impressed. Barbara Hershey and Ron Silver in The Entity. Hey, wake up. Wake up, everybody. It's a gorgeous day. Gorgeous day. Come here. 20th Century Fox presents the story of Carla Moran. The most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? And they will find more than evidence. They will find the entity. I love Barbara Hershey. I always have. The Entity is a film that literally scared me when I was a kid because it felt like I was watching, didn't feel like safe horror. Even Friday the 13th and, and Freddy and Jason. It's pretty you know. grim. Yeah, it is grim, no doubt. Because, And I think because this is dealing with a woman who is sexually abused by a ghost. It feels transgressive and in particular because it never really tips into shock effects for shock effect. It's all about... Barbara Hershey and punishing her. And really, she takes some crazy abuse in this film. I don't like this movie. And I feel like I should because it's somewhat well regarded among horror fans. I admire the film more than I like it. I think it is well made. I think it's interesting in the way it treats the paranormal. It's a pretty straightforward telling of the true case of what was reported to be true about the person this happened to, Doris Bither. It doesn't do a lot else. It is just the haunting and, you know, her being tormented over and over and then eventually getting somebody to believe her. It's very procedural, which I think that's what you're reacting to. This is very plotting. It has scenes that run way too long. It has scenes that repeat themes and ideas that we've seen before, heard earlier in the film. It loses a lot of tension. The scare moments. It takes almost an hour and 40 minutes to put her into that gymnasium. There are some legitimately creepy moments. Because we saw so many exploitation films that lean on rape as a device, it gets old very quickly. And you get to the point where you almost tune it all out. So much of this is meant to be her point of view. And I feel like her performance raises it past exploitation. I think this is more character based. Oh, oh she's great. Ron Silver is great. It does have exploitation. There's moments. that moment where Alex Rocco sees it happen to her and they do the bladder effect where you see the hands. A, it's not a great effect. I don't think they ever quite figured out how to do it. The reason that it's important that he sees it is I, I do feel like by that point in the film, she has begged for something to happen in front of a witness for so long. And it doesn't feel exploitative so much as it is. They're just trying to be explicit with what is happening to show the shock of it. They try to stay on her face and they try to keep it personal. I feel like they, they work hard not to make the ugly, ugly version of this movie. I think Sidney J. Fury at this point in his career was just not a very good director. I'd agree with you there. I don't think he's particularly a talented guy. I think this might be one of the overall most successful things he made. His next movie will be Purple Hearts. Then we move on to Iron Eagle and Superman 4. Oh, boy. Um, so listen, our next two films we're going to talk about back to back because they were released for a special double feature engagement theatrically, which is a weird ass idea by Universal. Not really, because if you think about it, the Rolling Stones and Gilbert and Sullivan are all very similar. <laughs> I still don't totally understand what was going on at Universal at the time, but let's start first with the uh, the concert film. Scott, 
Drew, let's spend the night together. Richard. What? Wood. White. The Stones. The film. Let's spend the night together. Recorded in Dolby Stereo. Rated PG. Starts February 11th at a theater near you. Let me ask you a question. And I'm curious if you have a uh, take on this, because I don't know that I find there's a consensus on this. What makes a great concert film a great concert film? Intimacy. I think allowing a viewer to get a perspective that they wouldn't get from a seat. I think there's two different answers, and I like that answer because I certainly feel like some of my favorite concert films are about intimacy. When U2 3D came out, one of the things that I reacted to, it's fine as a concert film, but the craziest thing about the 3D, if you saw it in a really nice theater, was it was better than the best seat you would ever get. You could never have the seat that that movie gave you, ever, no matter how you did it live. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think there's an argument made that intimacy is the key, but other people would say it's the spectacle or it's the, do you capture an event a certain way? Let's get to the point, Drew. Does Let's Spend the Night Together do either of those? Not even close. So what's all the shoe leather for? Because (laughs) it's baffling to me that this is Hal Ashby. It's not just that it's Rolling Stones concert film. Hey, they missed the mark. It's that you get pretty world-class filmmaker here. And there is no sign of him on this movie. None. What makes this a lesser concert film than, say, Radlin Hum, which I frankly love? I think no perspective. It doesn't really tell me who the Rolling Stones were at this moment. It doesn't tell me why it's a big deal that they played where they played or how many people are there or if the event was a special event or if this is just one stop of 50 on the tour. There's nothing. There's no context at all. And beyond that. It's a really thin set, like just as a as somebody who is not a huge fan of the Stones, but uh, I think as a live show, it's a little thin and it's not much of a document like this doesn't really make the case for them as ever having been a great live act. You know what else was not a live act? Me, when I played in the Pirates of Penzance in sixth grade. Did you do the pirate? Who did you play? I don't know. I just made that up. I was actually in Pinocchio. I played the cat. <laughs> the cat. He sings about the money tree. I played that. From the cinematographer of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the editor of Lawrence of fucking Arabia, Pirates of Penzance. In 1879, a musical comedy about love and honor was produced in Victorian England. It was a bit daring, a trifle naughty, and a smashing success. 100 years later, that same musical comedy opened in a park in New York. But it took some liberties with the music, played havoc with the action, and went crazy with the cast. It was a bit shocking, totally unexpected. And an overwhelming hit. Now, in the spirit of taking liberties, poking fun, and playing havoc, the musical comedy from 1879 and the cast from 1979 join forces to continue the tradition of breaking tradition.
Universal made a deal with some pay early, early pay companies like Select TV. And the plan was that they were going to release this adaptation of Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance starring Linda Ronstadt and Kevin Klein. And they were going to release it theatrically and to select TV subscribers at the same time. Even back then, theater owners were like, no, the fuck you're not. And they boycotted <laughs> it. And I don't know how many screens it played on, but it was a giant money loss. It was like shoveling money into a furnace. I'm pretty sure I have a copy of the no, the fuck you're not memo. It got delayed and held up for so long that the goofball shitty version of the Pirates of Penzance, a.k.a. the pirate movie, made it to theaters a year ahead of time and poisoned that well. This movie is uh, probably well remembered by 80s refugees as something that played on HBO a whole hell of a lot, probably because HBO could get it for half the price of Porky's. When you look at the town in the movie. I feel like this is what Sea Haven would have been if anybody but Robert Altman had made Popeye. And and that's clearly done by design. Oh, so it's 100%. Not fair. Yeah, no, that is the choice. They are trying to make this movie. I get like maybe the old fashioned intent, but by making it such an artificial set, you're defeating the purpose of cinematic adaptation. The guy who directed it um, also did this on stage. I think on stage, that was the the call, was to make it as heightened theatrical, as fake as possible. And you know what? On stage, that could be a five-star idea. Yeah. But everything about this is we're following through from what we've done on stage, except with some of the casting. I think the real reason this film exists is somebody wanted to get a film recording, a record of some sort of that Kevin Klein performance, because it was legendary on stage. This was what turned him into a, a working actor on film. This is what got everybody in town to decide they wanted him to make movies. And he was a phenomenon. And sure enough, when you see him in the film, he is, as the kids put it, a hoot. Yeah. Played 92 theaters. I checked. Angela Lansbury, also great. Linda Ronstadt, not much of an actor. Uh, Rex Smith, sure can sing. Yep. Not charismatic. And here's what really struck me while I was watching it. When the first big musical number comes up and the pirates arrive on the beach and the pirates are singing and the girls are singing and they're running around. Made me think of the old Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And man, pirate rape sure was adorable in our culture for a long time, wasn't it? It You know, it's just fun that you can like stop it at a certain point and go, oh, they're chasing the women. Isn't that funny? Cut. Well, what happens after they fucking catch them, dude? We really defanged pirates. Pirates became these adorable bad guys. That's why I hate talk like a pirate day. And that that's why I would love for somebody to do like a movie like Black Sails, which is a decent show. And I would love to have somebody make, you know, like a master and commander type film about pirates. This, this, this is definitely not that. No, no. <laughs> Roman Polanski's pirates is more realistic. All right, now we're going to move on to a film that I remember quite liking growing up, and I don't think I like it anymore. The Lords of Discipline. I was inducted into a secret organization known as the Ten. Bear, what's the Ten? They used to say that it was a legend. Oh. Someday these men will lead our country. No! Unless they can be stopped. I'm going to stop this. Dead. You want my resignation? Rated R. It's a movie about two movies. It's two movies. The first half of the movie is about a, a very strict and very white military academy that accepts a black cadet, much to the chagrin of many of the other cadets who then go about making his life a living hell. And David Keith in 
100% all shucks mode is the cadet assigned to keep an eye on the black cadet and make sure that he is not messed with too egregiously. And then that slowly leads into a plot that is similar to the skulls uh, that is about the 10, uh, a bunch of young soldiers who uh, consider themselves beyond the law and uh, take it upon themselves to exact all kinds of rules and uh, punishments on campus. And my main problem with the movie is it's about a black kid in a school and the black kid has about five lines. Uh, He's not a character. He's not a character at all. When you talk about how cultural representation is changing or why it matters or what it does to storytelling or what perspective changes. This is a movie by a Frenchman who is adapting a book by Pat Conroy, who wrote about the South and wrote about this kind of institutionalized casual racism in a way that clearly Conroy understood what he was writing about. Conroy is a great writer and he's smart. He also is a profoundly white writer who wrote from a white perspective. And this movie is all about David Keith's emotional journey to becoming a good person because he does what is literally the baseline right thing in this situation at the last possible moment because he's backed into a corner and forced to do it. If you would ask me a year ago. Which is the better film, this or Taps? I would have said this. Oh, no. No, no, no. And this is not terrible. It's just wrongheaded because if you want it to be about David Keith and his journey, fine. But the Black Cadet has to be a character of some importance. And here's where it feels exploitative. You talked about exploitation in the last one. When there's scenes where they're torturing this kid and they're pouring gasoline on him, they're going to burn him. I don't know who he is. I still don't know the inside of this kid at all. And that's a huge deficiency in your film. Played by Mark Breland. I, I just kept waiting for the scene for him to have some moment of, of why we should care. I mean, obviously we care about him because he's being tortured. There is more time spent about Rick Rosovich playing a muscle head who can't deal with somebody swearing in front of a photo of his girlfriend than there is in dealing with anything about this black kid's inner life or what it was like to be the first to cross into an all white institution where people are fucking armed. Really good performance by Robert Prosky. Deserves a better film. He's tough, gruff, but oddly likable, which is weird because Prosky is usually just scummy. It also has uh, some young Michael Bean, young Bill Paxton. J.D. Spradlin shows up as the general. Uh, and a young Judge Reinhold. Uh, I'd be curious to see if people watch this film and are able to get past that real disconnect, which is like nobody on set said, hey, man. We got to give this character three or four scenes where we get to know him. Here's my question for you without looking at the IMDb. Is this the same casting director as the Terminator or was James Cameron a big fucking fan of this movie? I don't know, man. That's interesting. Because you got Rick Rosovich, you've got Bill Paxton and you've got Michael Bean. Let's move on to a better film that will wipe away the uh, relative sleaziness of the Lords of Discipline because it is kind of a sleazy movie. This is a beautiful, lovable, endlessly funny movie called Local hero. This is the new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire. Local hero. Us Magazine says, hurrahs for local hero. It is an enchanting film with charm all the way, says Judith Christ. Newsweek Magazine calls local hero a gift. Its surprisingly complex moods linger with a bittersweet afterglow. It is joyously warm-hearted with assured artistry, finesse, and deadpan hilarity, says the village voice. Local Hero is a charming, unusual, and immensely likable comedy, says Newsday. 
And the New York Times calls it rare, disarming, and funny. A thoroughly original film that makes an audience sense that something magical is going on. Peter Riegert. Burt Lancaster. Local hero. I'm excited. This is one of those that makes doing this exciting because you get to go back and do this. Yeah, we have two other films coming up, both of which are great, but I'm kind of hoping that this is the uh, the dark horse of the episode. Local Hero stars uh, Peter Riegert as an oil company representative who goes to a small village in Scotland and starts proposing to buy up various plots of land and homes from the seemingly innocent and quaint townspeople. But indeed, they're a lot cleverer than our American seem to think they are. And this has got... Well, Peter Capaldi, Burt Lancaster, and maybe one of his best performances ever, because A, he's like forced to play something out of his comfort zone, and B, he's not in it very much. Burt Lancaster's hilarious, and one of my favorite subplots in this is the weird dude that he's hired to help him, who gradually becomes more and more unhinged and believes that abuse is the key to helping Burt Lancaster break through whatever he's going through. On one level, it is just a sweet situation comedy. On the other hand, it's a satire of how Americans look at small town people, especially from other countries, and assume that they're naive. And this movie makes the case that, uh, you know what, maybe people in small communities are less naive because they all communicate together. I love the little secret meetings that they're having all around town as they're as they're talking about how much they're going to rob the oil company when they when they come for them. And it does have a little bit of edge to it, but it's just an upbeat movie about human nature. And Peter Riegert, who we of course know from Animal House, and recently very funny on Kimmy Schmidt. He's great in this, and I wish that. I don't know why a guy like Peter Riegert didn't have a more. I mean, he's had a steady career his whole life, but I don't know why a guy like him didn't become like a, a, a more steady character actor. Dennis Lawson, of course, we knew from Star Wars, and it was super exciting as a kid to see him in a movie where I'm like, oh, my God, there's a guy who had stepped out of only Star Wars to appear in what what really was a charming discovery at the time. Uh, for me, the real treat this time was I've seen this movie five or six times since I saw it the first time in 83, uh, but I haven't seen it in many years, and I am fairly sure the last time I saw it, the thick of it had not come out yet. And so Peter Capaldi did not mean to me what Peter Capaldi means to me now. And suddenly seeing him in this, he's delightful. His his whole subplot is so good. Uh, he's great in this. Great Mark Knopfler score. I really, I want to, uh, Knopfler didn't do a lot of film work, but this is a really lovely piece of film. Writing. Yeah. And, you know, hats off to Bill Forsyth. He did Gregory's Girl. And uh, throughout the 80s, he had a couple more films. We'll cover Comfort and Joy, which I don't remember much of, but I know it's a good film. It's about dueling ice cream vendors. And Breaking In, which, ready, Drew? I'm going to blow your mind. I love Breaking I'm, In. I'm with you. I can't wait to get there. All right. Well, man, I'm so excited. I can't believe we're here finally. Now, from the creator of Scanners. Videodrome. Videodrome bites. Videodrome. What are you waiting for, lover? You're going insane. This turns me on. Videodrome. 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 Very realistic. First, it controls your mind. Then, it destroys your body. Deborah Harry. James Woods. You let me watch? Videodrome. A terrifying new weapon. I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of a few iconic filmmakers when you and I were young. Obviously, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, of course, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, 
he is one of my, I would say, primary influences. Absolutely. Anybody who loves horror, either as a film watcher or a filmmaker or a film or novelist, anybody who loves horror uh, of our approximate age has to be at least partially in love with David Cronenberg. Uh, this is the first of his two films this year, and I, I think it might be one of the most prescient films of the decade. Videodrome is a terrifying, clear-eyed look forward at how addicted we are to being stimulated and how eventually we are going to turn our brains into receptors for things we have no idea we're even receiving. A trenchant, punch-in-the-gut satire of mass consumerism, television culture, uh, uh, laziness, American complacency. This is the network of horror films. Well, and it's and it takes place at a moment where, you know, this is still the shadowy world of like UHF TV and the dawn of cable. And I love that the logo for Civic TV is the one you take to bed with you. Because that idea that TV didn't go off was still fairly new. Poltergeist, the year before this, was still playing in the idea that there's an end of a broadcasting day. And after that, there's that weird middle of the night nothing where anything can happen. And here it's, no, you go to bed and the TV's working on you even while you're asleep. And now our Netflix asks us if we're still watching. We might as well attack the elephant in the room. Given his political opinions and the way he treats people, I think James Woods is a piece of shit. This might be some of his best work ever. All that stuff is now, and that's fine, whatever. James Woods is garbage. He played garbage a lot, and he was cast frequently because he looked like someone who would leave a film on stuff if he touched it. In several films, he gives intense, memorable, great performances, and this is one of them. I really like the way the the movie baits the hook for Max, and... If you've seen the film more than once, then when you go through the second time, you realize the entire film is a trap that's closing around him. And it's so beautifully constructed for him. A sleazy programmer for a UHF video channel uncovers a broadcast that may be a snuff film that is changing the people who watch it. It could be the the despicable nature of certain humans is uh, causing an actual break in reality through technology. Uh, who knows? That's what the movie's about. It's about like we're addicted to technologies that we don't understand completely. We trust them completely, but we don't understand them. I, I think the movie works obviously as well today as it did back then. Uh, I love Professor Brian Oblivion, who only appears on television on television. I think that is next level hilarious. And when you watch this and you realize this was filmed in 82, and there's a scene where they're on television, they're debating all this stuff that they do and, you know, who they represent. And uh, Nikki, played by Debbie Harry, who is terrific in this, she says at one point, we live in overstimulated times. This was 82. And think how quiet that was by comparison. I think what Cronenberg saw coming was that we would get to a point where we are driving ourselves crazy and don't know how to turn anything off. There's a moment in this where Brian Oblivion says something about that's my television name. Soon, all of us will have special names. And as somebody who still has actual in real life friends who call me Moriarty, we have turned the corner past where Cronenberg started predicting this film. There's some very linear, clear themes in the movie, but there's also some really fun ambiguity and, and room for your brain to find its own. Uh, there's a there's a line that I love in this that to me sums up uh, cigarette executives or heroin dealers or anybody who provides anything dangerous. Um, and it's when Barry Convex has put the machine on on James Woods and he stops by the door and he turns back and he says, you'll forgive me if I don't stay around and watch. I just can't cope with the freaky stuff. And that is I don't use my thing. I make it for you because I don't care what happens to you. That is this movie in a nutshell. It is about an industry that is eating people alive and doesn't care. 
it, it's so smart. It's so political. I would argue he may be the most political horror filmmaker who came out of that era, even more so than Carpenter, who nakedly wears his metaphors on his sleeve. I think Cronenberg was angry. Well, wait a minute. How can he wear anything on his sleeve if he's naked? I Uh, I don't know. Good point. I've mixed my metaphors to death. If you were a robot, your head would explode right now. I I have mixed my metaphors to death. It's true. Now, Videodrome, one of the best uh, horror films of the decade, uh, one of the most compelling and challenging use com- combinations of science fiction and horror. And I mean real science fiction, not just there's an alien in space. That makes it science fiction. Uh, I've seen this movie eight or ten times. I don't think I'll ever get tired of it, probably because I don't watch it that often. 75, he did Shivers. 77, he did Rabid. 79, The Brood, 81, Scanners, 83, Videodrome and the Dead Zone, 86, The Fly, 88, Dead Ringers, and then 91, if you consider Naked Lunch horror, then there you go. That's one of the best horror streaks you'll ever see. Right at the tail end of one of the other best streaks you'll ever see by a filmmaker comes this next picture, our final one this week, and uh, one of the strangest footnotes in the career of the great Martin Scorsese. Scott, where do you stand on the King of Comedy? So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pupkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, in a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. I dig it. Uh, I'm a much bigger fan of his subsequent film, After Hours. And when we get to After Hours, I can explain why. But I came to this even later than that. And not unlike Videodrome, it is a scathing indictment of of television consumption and and our addiction to the moving image uh, and being famous and being looked at. It, it stars Robert De Niro as Rupert Pupkin, a sad sack wannabe comic who styles himself as a uh, a big star and is obsessed with a Johnny Carson like television host as played by Jerry Lewis. First of all, I'm obsessed with Jerry Lewis' performance in this movie. Yeah, he's fantastic. It's like remind me of Richard Dawson in in Running Man. The best sequence in this movie involves Jerry Lewis and Sandra Bernhardt. And it is what would happen if a fan was finally given carte blanche. You get whatever evening you want with the star of your choice, and they can't do anything about it. There is obviously the misery end of the pool if you wanted to go horror film. I don't know that you need to be any scarier than what we see here. It is terrifying and crazy and during the entire thing i've got to think jerry lewis was just thinking how did i end up what is happening around me she's one of those force of nature actors and in other things if you were to say she's a bit over the top and a bit uh grating i might not disagree but sandra bernhard should have been nominated for this movie oh she's unreal in this film and every scene between her and de niro what i love is i love the energy as they feed each other's crazy This is what crazy people look for is they look for another crazy person who goes, I smell your crazy. I'll raise you this crazy. And now our crazy together is super powerful crazy. 
I love like that we can recommend this and After Hours because obviously any every almost every movie nerd in the world loves Scorsese to one degree or another. If you look at these two films, he came off Raging Bull and then he did this. There was a period where Scorsese talked about getting out. He was not happy. And the work that he was doing in this era, you know, was super demanding. You look at Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull. These are movies that you put everything into that you have to give your whole heart to. And he was getting to the point where he wasn't sure he was going to be able to do that. And he really only had one more film he wanted to make, which was Last Temptation of Christ. And he wanted De Niro to play Jesus. And he tried forever to get that going. And De Niro kept him on the hook by saying, well, if you'll do a comedy with me, then I'll play Jesus for you. And so they went looking for a comedy script. And this was the closest thing that Scorsese found to a comedy that he was interested in. And I love that because I find this really oh, funny. Man, I, it's a comedy, but it's, it's not a comedy in the sense that any studio knows what to do with in terms of selling a comedy. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love I love comedies that take firm aim at our own faults. They're, they're a lot more truthful. They're a lot more memorable. And what I just found interesting about about Scorsese's 80s and that kind of rhymes. Welcome to Scorsese's 80s is that, you know, he did Raging Bull. Then he did King of Comedy. Then he did After Hours. And then he went right back to color of money. <laughs> it's like, we're, you know what? I, I got to go back to crime movies because that's where people kind of, he kind of felt like he was direct, like organized back. I wasn't even organized. He was punished. He, he commercially kept failing. Like he, after hours was not a hit for him. And he wasn't somebody the studios could really bank on. I find this a really interesting bookend to Taxi Driver. Because obviously Taxi Driver is the violent version of what happens when you have a relationship with a public figure that doesn't exist, that's only in your head. And his whole obsession with the politician has to do with his, his feeling, you know, he, he has no power and he needs to feel powerful. Rupert's about something very different, but he's a perfect bookend to Travis in that he's just as crazy. He's just as delusional. He's just as driven to do something about his crazy. And he wants fame not because he's a hero or because he saved a girl from some pimp or because he did something great and affected history. He wants specifically the applause of a Tonight Show audience. And that downstairs room of his that he has rigged up with the fake set. The first time you see that in the movie, you go, oh. And yet now... In a YouTube generation, Rupert doesn't look as crazy as he used to. Rupert just looks like a guy who was too early. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's a great film. And it often is kind of forgotten because people talk about, you know, the Raging Bulls and the casinos and the Goodfellas. This is a fantastic film. I, I have no interest in ranking it among his other films. But if you like Scorsese, I, I find it hard to believe that you won't dig the King of Comedy. It's one of the films that... Uh you should see because of the performances and specifically because there's almost no other place Sandra Bernhard has ever been this good or that Jerry Lewis has ever been this real. Plus, isn't it always cool to see like some who, you know, their work really well and you see what would like maybe an aberration. Oh, these always made horror movies, but then he went off and made a drama or she's always made comedies. And this is her one attempted at thriller. And did it work out? And I, I just love that he's always had dark humor in almost everything he's ever done. But it's just fascinating to see the playful, the darkly playful side of, of Scorsese. I would say I this is it. the last moment Jerry Lewis mattered on film until Funny Bones. It's a real aberration. 
Guys, next month is going to be unbelievable. March 83 is a very, very strange lineup. We're going to see a lot of the uh, sins of Porky's being visited upon audiences. We're going to see maybe one of the most influential films of the decade that nobody's seen. Uh, we're going to get another Neil Simon comedy. We're going to see movie stars at the end of things like Charles Bronson, movie stars that never quite happened like Tom Selleck, sequels that shouldn't have happened, and... We're going to learn what the meaning of life is. So we will see you back here in two weeks for March of 1983.